0: Praise his holy name. Bless his name, bless his name, bless his name. Praise God, praise God. He's most definitely our Savior, amen. Amen. Our protector, our provider, bless his holy name. We ask this morning that you would Turn in your Bibles to the book of John, the 6th chapter, verses 1 through 15. That's the book of John, the 6th chapter, verses 1 through 15. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you just shout, He's my Savior! And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. And the word of God says this in John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, lifting up his eyes Then, and seeing that the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii. Worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have The people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten, Eating their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are awesome. You are our source. You are our substance. You are our never-ending supply. You are our provision. You are our provider. And you are our protector. You are everything that we need. We ask that you would enlarge in us today the gift of faith Granted to each and every one of us. Let us take to heart the truth of your word, O Lord. Let us be convicted by its great power. Let us submit and surrender to its authority in our lives. Let us indeed walk by faith and not by sight. Let us truly understand that believing is seeing. Let us be persuaded by the prophet that you have sent into the world, your son, Christ Jesus. It is in the name of your son and our Savior that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Praise his holy name. You know, this is the only miracle during the ministry of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. And I think there's a reason behind that because this is a great lesson of faith. Jesus shows his disciples as well as the crowd that is being fed that he is the ultimate source of our supply. That he is able To meet our every need. That was true then, and that is true now. All we need is Jesus. We see John as he opens up this sixth chapter, which is an incredible chapter in itself. It's a great chapter of faith, and it let us he's letting us know exactly where Jesus is. After this Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. After this Meta Husa. The same phrase that he uses to introduce chapter 5 1, he does here now in 6 1 is a vague expression, but it gives us sort of a time sequence the next words that John allows us to hear is that he tells us that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has traveled from the east side of the city, or rather the Sea of Galilee, and this was a side that was dominated by the Jews. This was about A.D. 20 when Herod founded this city on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee, And he called it Tiberius after the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar. And now you see John as he adds more introduction and more observation here in verse 2. He tells us that there's a large crowd following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick because of the great healing power of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, you see that he attracted a lot of attention and he's attracted an incredible following. Look at Mark 6, 33 through 34, because it says it this way. Mark 6, 33 through 34. Now many saw them going to And recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He here is speaking of Jesus. And he had what? Compassion on them. Listen to this. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now the first thing we've got to notice there is that the crowd is following him. They're not following him so much as they want to obey him or they really want to listen to his teaching. They're following him because of the signs that he's performed before them because he's healed the sick. And they understood that he had something to offer. John 2, 23 through 25. And this is important that Jesus didn't get excited about this fellowship because he knew the very heart of mankind. John 2, 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. They, because they saw the miraculous signs that he had performed on the sick. Again, this great crowd wasn't attracted to the word but they were attracted to the fact that he could heal the sick. That was their draw. But look at just, look at the opposite of the draw of Jesus upon their lives. It says that Jesus was attracted to their plight because he saw their deeper need. Jesus saw these people as sheep without a shepherd. And he understood sheep without a shepherd in a wilderness world, place themselves in danger. Everyone under the sound of my voice in this sanctuary and via the internet, you need to understand, if you don't belong to Jesus, you are sheep without a shepherd and you are in danger in this secular world. But Jesus saw them and he immediately had compassion upon them John tells us that Jesus went then and gathered his disciples he took them upon a mountain and sat down with them so they could strategize on how they were to minister to this great crowd verse 3 says Jesus went up to the mountain and sat down with his disciples this meeting took place on a nearby mountain or on the hill country or higher ground. It refers to just being east of the lake, a place that is now known as the Golden Heights. It's a solitary place. It was a desolate place. Jesus chose it specifically. He was intending to get away from the crowd's for a moment, that he could sit down with his disciples and that they could prepare for the ministry that was closing in on them. You need to always remember something, that successful, substantive ministry, public ministry, really depends on the solitude and the sacred prayer of preparation. Public ministry might look effortless, But great public ministry is only achieved through great private prayer. Jesus has shown us time and time and time again in the scriptures that he was willing to withdraw and go and get with God in prayer to prepare him to minister so that he might gather his thoughts. John gives us another reason for understanding why the crowd was so great when you look at verse 4 it says now the passover the feast of the jews was at hand this gives us further explanation of the enormity of this crowd they were there because of the incredible signs that they have seen from Jesus healing people, but they were also there because it was a Passover and the Passover was one of the feasts that all the Jews from all the towns and all the villages would come and be a part of. In the Gospel of John, he mentions three Passovers. This is the second of those three. And he includes this one not so much because it's chronological. He includes this one because it's Theological. You see, if you look at the fact that the Jewish Passover celebrated the exodus from Egypt and that intrinsic to that celebration was the slaughter of lambs for each household that they would consume... And if you recognize that John's gospel teaches us that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that Jesus is the one to behold because, look, John says, here's the Lamb of God, then we recognize that this first Passover, and you see it in two John 2, 13, points to the self designation when jesus says i'm the temple destroy this temple and i will rebuild it in three days they thought he was talking about their temple instead of him and then that points his way to his death when we see the second or rather the third passover mentioned when he talks about his immediate death but this is the second mention of the passover this intermediate mention here occurs around the time of the feeding of 5,000 and it also has a hidden meaning because it precipitates that Jesus is the bread of life. It identifies him as his flesh is the true bread that must be given to the world so that they might have life. John 6, 51 says it this way, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, they will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, Jesus is a bread that must be eaten by all people if we are ever going to have eternal life. Do you recognize that God the Father is an experienced God? That he knows well that we wake up every morning with a good appetite? And that this same God that sustains us is a God that sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the same God that sent three million missionaries to China and they had to go underground, and the church flourished and grew larger than ever before. This is the same God that we serve, and he has ample means to supply all of our needs. All we have to do is learn to depend upon God and his work, because God's work never lacks God's supply. Think about that. God's work never lacks God's supply we see here in verse 5 that indeed little becomes much when it's placed in the prophet's hand look what it says here in verse 5 of John 6 lifting up his eyes then and seeing that the large crowd was coming toward him Jesus said to Philip where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? You know, I'm just going from the text. It's making me lean to the possibility that Jesus here is really in the midst of prayer. And that he lifts up his eyes from that prayer and he sees the uncoming crowd, oncoming crowd. Matthew 6, through 35 gives us a further explanation. It talks about them running uh, from the north end to the lake to catch up with him. It talks about, it speaks about that Jesus taught them at some length. And that is why he had compassion upon them because he was concerned that he had kept them so late that there was nowhere they could find a meal. John's purpose in his gospel is to show that it is Jesus, our Savior, their shepherd, who took the initiative to handle the problem in hand. So, Pastor, what was the problem? I think the problem is clearly stated here in what Jesus asked Philip. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Philip was an obvious person to ask. He, was, he grew up in a nearby town of Bethsaida. But John adds a comment here for anyone who might think that maybe Jesus was stumped or maybe Jesus was surprised by the situation at hand. Listen to the words of John 6, 6. He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. You see, Jesus already had a plan. And Jesus already understood what the problem was. But what he wanted to do was to test Philip to see if Philip had decided to start to trust in him and not trust in himself. The verb here is perazo. And usually it's used, you see it in James, usually it's used to speak of tempting someone or to solicit evil. But this is not the way John is using it here. Jesus sought again to see whether Philip was growing in his faith toward him or was Philip still seeking earthly resources. Do you understand that God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit test you every day? To see if you are going to trust. Are you going to innately trust them? Or default and trust yourself? Are you going to cry out to him? Or cry amongst yourself? If you really think that you have no alternative in any situation. That is dependent upon you. And not recognizing that God is sovereign. Jesus was testing Philip here to see if he would stoop to buy bread when Philip was in the presence of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Look what happens here in verses 79. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little, to get a bite. You see, Philip's response, and in our response, Philip's response betrays the fact that he doesn't truly believe in Jesus. That he can only think of a level of the marketplace, the natural world, the sec- a secular source, instead of seeking a spiritual source. One of the disciples, my namesake, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Then he wavers a little bit but what are they for so many new life do you recognize that we serve a God that is capable of serving and providing for all of our needs Philippians 4 19 and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus Hebrews 11 1 through 3 Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what is the Bible saying about faith to us? Hebrews 11.1 tells us that we can be sure of what we hope for and we can be certain of what we do not see. Perhaps in a Christian life there is no uh, no more component that is more important than faith. Think about it. Faith, we can't purchase it, we can't sell it, we can't give it to our friends. So what role does faith play in our Christian life? I'm going to just give you a secular definition. The dictionary defines faith as belief, devotion to, or trust in somebody or something Especially without logical proof, it defines faith as belief in and devotion to God. Faith is so important to our Christian walk that Scripture clearly says that it's impossible to please God without it. Hebrews eleven six, and without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for. Whomever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So when we look at that and contrast it to a secular definition, to a spiritual definition, according to the Bible, faith is belief in the one true God without actually seeing him. So, Pastor, where does faith come from? Faith is not something, my friends, that we can conjure up. It's not something that we own. It's not something that we're born in. It's not something that is the result of our diligent study or our spiritual pursuit. Faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says it this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Does this passage not make it clear that faith is a gift from God? It's not something that we deserve. It's not something that we are worthy of. It's not something that we have earned. It's not from ourselves, but it is from God. It's not something that we attain by our own power or our own free will. Faith is simply given to us by God along with his grace and his mercy toward us because of his plan and his purpose in our lives. And because of our faith, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose. And because of that, then God gets all the glory. So it's important, Pastor, that we should have faith? Yes. God has designed a way to distinguish between those who belong to him and those who don't. And it's called faith. Very simply, we need it to please God. Even more simply, he rewards those who earnestly and diligently seek him. God blesses those who are obedient and faithful. You see, the result or the benefit of being obedient and faithful unto God is that he rewards those who believe that he exists and that diligently seek him. He understands that we are seeking him to be in the center of his will when we're obedient to his word, when we are faithful to his decrees. I think we see a perfect example in Luke 7 and 50. You see that woman that he's engaging in a conversation with, a sinful woman who has a glimpse that if she could just get to Jesus and Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you, go in peace. See, she believed in Jesus by faith and he rewarded her for it. First Peter 1.89 says this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Are there examples of faith throughout the Bible? Absolutely. You need to go no further, really, than chapter 11 of Hebrews. You see, Abel, he offers up a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. You see, Noah preparing the ark in a time when there is a great rain coming, a flood, when he's never ever seen rain before. You see Abraham when he leaves his household and he leaves his homeland. You see Moses when he leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. You see Rahab that gives the spies a different way that those members went so that they would follow the wrong way. Time and time and time again, you see how faith conquered kingdoms how faith aminished justice how faith gained exactly what was prayed for and promised how faith shed the mountains or rather the mouths of lions how faith quenched the flames when they were trying to burn up Christians how faith allowed Christians to escape the edge of the sword how faith took their weakness and brought it into strength time and time again He honors those. He rewards those who are diligently seeking. Faith is essential to Christianity. And you can't have a disjointed faith. You can't believe Him in some things and don't believe Him in others. You can't believe in what you're praying for when you don't believe Him in the pain of your times. That's disjointed. You got to believe him for everything. In all things. Our faith can falter at times. But the gift of God will prevail in times of trial, in times of testing. I think this is why James clearly says in James 1 2 through 4 that we should consider it all joy James 1 2 through 4 count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials and very, of various kinds for you know that the testing perazo the testing of your faith produces steadfastness so going through a test has a purpose To make you steadfast. Really to prepare you for the next test. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't go around the test. Go what? Through the test. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. Nothing. You see, this is a test that Jesus is taking Philip through right now. The testing of his faith in difficult circumstances. Always remember, new life. The existence of faith is demonstrated by action. Philip is being asked to demonstrate his faith before Jesus right here and right now. But what happens Philip does the same thing that we do many times. Philip doesn't show faith, but he opts out to rely on his own resources. You can tell this by the answer that he returns to Jesus. Really kind of sarcastically. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be a one, would not be enough for each of them to get little he knew that Jesus knew how to count that one denarius was the days pay for a common worker and if he's talking about 200 denarii he's talking about eight months of wages would not be enough to give just each one of these people a bite he's saying that a large crowd like this would have to have a large sum of money And then when you even see Andrew's response, which when I first went through it, I thought, hey, this tends to show some promise, but not really in a spiritual way. I think it shows some promise because Andrew starts with what he has. And he brings what he has to Jesus. But he doesn't leave the consequences to Jesus. Because he says, he questions, is this, what is this in the face of so many? You see, Jesus only asks you to bring what you have. And that little becomes much in his hands. The consequences are his. And yeah, even if you don't have nothing, then bring nothing but faith. And the consequences are still his. But, you know, there's something even deeper here. I mean, John is really dredging up the memories of the Old Testament, even as he relates this miracle that's about to happen. Look at the, for just a second, go to 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44. 2 Kings chapter 4. 42 through 44. And a man came from baal Lisa, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the man that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the man that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and they had some left according to the word of the Lord. You see, God had done this before. And God is about to do it again. He's about to meet the need. Because this prophet is about to give thanks. And the need is going to be met. Look at John 6.10. Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. I want you to see the authority in which Jesus operates. This is kingdom authority, and if we are truly Christians, we have kingdom authority as well. I want you to just, but you know, our kingdom authority is tied to him and being in his will. I want you to see that despite the size of the crowd, Jesus is not overwhelmed by the superior need, but he shows (laughs) supremacy and supernatural resources to meet the need. I think so many times we cower in the face of the need instead of recognizing With Christ, we are more than conquerors. So we have supernatural and superior resources that we can bank upon. So he tells them before they get out of hand, sit down. He's telling them, sit down and prepare yourselves mentally for a meal because it's about to happen. So they sit down in groups of, this is Mark probably 39, 6, 39 through 40. They sit down in groups of 100, in groups of 50. They tell us that the grass was green, which makes us recognize that this was done in March or April, which puts it in line with the Passover. Because, of course, in this area, if it had been summer, the grass would have been brown because they didn't water their grass and it would have burned it up. It tells us that they only counted the men. So we recognize that this was either 15,000 or 20,000 people. Because man, woman, one child. Man, woman, two children. So again, he is not, Jesus is not deterred by the largeness of the task, but he takes what is in his hand and he gives thanks to God. And that's what we must do. True faith requires us to bring what we have and trust God to supply the rest. Verse 11, he goes on Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. We understand when Jesus gives thanks here, he's not just blessing the food. That he's probably using uh, the Jewish understanding of offering thanksgiving. Probably says something like this, Blessed art thou, O God, because he's thinking his Father. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. We recognize that this word here, where he's given thanks, is really Eucharist. Those who come from a Catholic background recognize that the Eucharist is their communion. Those of us who are Protestant, we call it the Lord's Supper or communion. But the word Eucharist means thank you. So here, what is Jesus thanking God for? Jesus is thanking God for how lavish the supply and the abundance that he has given to his people. Because it says they ate as much as they wanted. Far beyond what 200 denarii could have even paid for. This was the ultimate sign that he's a provider, that he is our provision, that he can bring something out of nothing like in creation ex nihilo. You know, when you paint a painting, you didn't create the paint, you didn't create the brush, you didn't create the canvas, but when God creates, he's using everything that he personally made. John 6, 30 35 says this. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave you bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, now, the reason Jesus is saying this is because they are still caught up in the physical. They just want to say, okay, you fed us today, hey, breakfast is tomorrow at eight. Give us this bread always. But then Jesus is making a point here. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So instead of asking me for bread, ask me for myself. And then I will supply your hunger. I will quench your thirst. And there's another connection here. You know, this is a real complex passage. There's another issue here that the sacrificial lamb anticipates the very death of Jesus. The Old Testament manna was superseded by the real bread of life. So Old Testament manna was pointing itself to Jesus. The Passover feast is overtaken by communion, overtaken by the Eucharist, because it points to Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. So it's a movement from that sacrifice to this miracle, a movement from Moses to Jesus, a movement from bread to flesh. Look at John 6, 12 through 13. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Think about it. All of them totally satisfied all of them having enough to eat. This is more than a mouthful. This is a miracle. This is the abundant life that comes with our faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Jeremiah thirty-one fourteen says, This is the ample provision of the Lord who declares, My people will be filled with my bounty. Though the Lord... As lavish abundance to meet their need, he allowed nothing to be wasted. He collected all that was left over. He wanted to show them there's 12 baskets left over. And this is after everyone has been satisfied. So you disciples who are following me recognize that now, not that I can only meet the needs of the crowds, I can meet your needs as well. All four Gospels draw upon this number, recognizing that Jesus shows grace and pragmatism, that he can do all things. There's a story about the little sisters of the poor in a small town that were going door to door in this French city. And they were soliciting offerings Uh, for the old people of the church and one nun called upon this house of a free rich thinker a liberal and he said to her I'll give you a hundred a thousand francs if you would have a glass of champagne with me now of course for the nun it was an embarrassing situation she first hesitated but then when she thought how many people and how many loaves of bread could be bought with a thousand francs? When the servant brought out the bottle and poured it, the brave little nun emptied her glass. And then she looked at the proud house owner and said, please, another one at the same price. (laughs) Bless his name. We recognize here that Jesus is the prophet who has come into the world. He is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. Look at verses 15, as you were, 14 through 15. I love this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is a prophet who has come into the world. Now, this is Jesus' thinking here perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself finally these people who have been fed have come to an aha moment an aha moment like Deuteronomy 18 15 through 19 it says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire any more lest I die and the Lord said to me they are right in what they have spoken I will raise up for them a prophet like you he's speaking to Moses a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them to all and command them, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Jesus, the Hebrew tells us that's greater, the book of Hebrews tells us that greater than Moses is this prophet who is to come. He is the one who is to descend from heaven. But he's going to do it on his own timeline. He's not going to be ushered into something before his hour. And as they are overwhelmed by his ability to perform these miracles, they want to take him and make him king. But we see here, Jesus withdraws. He goes back up to the Golden Heights. He leaves that part of the lake. He understood supernaturally what they wanted to do. But he didn't want to accept their accolades. He wanted to be accountable unto God. You know, even if you're blessed in public ministry to do superior things in the name of Christ never put yourself between his glory everything that goes through you is for the glory of God everything that you have came down from heaven every perfect and good gift they recognize that this Jesus would be prophet, priest and king My friends, these are the three main offices that were spoken in the Old Testament about Jesus. That he'll be prophet, that he'll be priest, and that he'll be king. And Jesus is clearly the Messiah because he fulfills all of these roles. As a prophet, he was tasked with speaking God's word to the people. He proclaimed the truth of God's word. He revealed future. Remember when prophecy means to foretell and to foretell when he preached to them he's he's foretelling he's preaching the word of God and then when he preached in a futuristic way he's giving them prophecy as well through his miracles and his healings he taught the word of God he spoke in parables they were amazed at his teaching because he didn't teach like any other teacher but he taught like an author like he wrote the word himself which he did and then Jesus is seen as the priest old testament priest served as what mediators between humans and God they all died but this priest dies and is raised from the dead so By that, he becomes the only mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the ultimate high priest. He's superior to all the Levitical priesthood. He's superior to Aaron. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, let us firmly hold to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Jesus is able to empathize and have compassion for our weakness because he lived the same life, yet he never sinned. It goes on. Emphasize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Lastly, the Office of King, illustrated by David. David calls him a man after his, rather God calls David a man after his own heart. God promised David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, 16. But we see that that rightful king and that rightful throne will be inhabited by Jesus Christ. The angel Gabriel told Mary that Jesus would be great and he would be called the Son of the Most High. That the Lord would give him the throne of the Father David and he would reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This is something that we have to embrace This is something that has to become infectious in our spirit. We have to be convicted in our heart that he's prophet, priest, and king. He's able to deliver. He's able to save. He's able to thwart. He's able to protect. He's able to give provision. He's able to take little and make it much when it's placed in his hand because he is the prophet that has come into the world. He is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift that keeps on giving your son Christ Jesus. Thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection. Thank you for his redemption. Thank you for the fact that he's a lamb of God that has taken away the sin of the world. Thank you that he is the lamb, the word of God. Lord, place us with a hunger that we will just, place in us a hunger that we will just consume your word. Just like you told the prophet to eat the word. And he said, it tastes as sweet as honeycomb. Let us consume it and then let us be build up because of it, allow its nutrients to make us stronger, to make us steadfast, to make us willing and able to stand in any trial. For there is none like you in all the earth and we give you glory. It is in the precious name of your son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all And all God's children said, amen.